Chapter 5 of A Master Hand by Richard Dallas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Inquest. The next day at the time appointed, three o'clock, I attended as representative of the state the coroner's hearing. Since my interview with the inspector reported in the last chapter, I had seen no one likely to throw any light upon the case. I had also avoided any personal investigation, as I did not wish to form conclusions, preferring to give an unprejudiced hearing to the evidence as it was offered from the lips of the witnesses on the stand. When I entered upon the scene, the usual pomp and circumstance of such proceeding were present. Behind his desk sat the coroner, serious and dignified, as became the presiding officer of the occasion. Ranged to his right were the jurors, as I had seen them at the house, no more intelligent in appearance now than then, but perhaps with even greater solemnity in their bearing and expression, as was demanded of them in this hour of public importance. I crossed over to the table on the coroner's left, reserved for the state officers, and took a seat there with the inspector, Detective Miles, and several policemen. A mass of people filled the farther end of the room, most of them spectators drawn to the scene by the morbid curiosity that always attends on such occasions. Conspicuous among them I recognized Lytell, Davis, Benton, and others whom I knew to be present as witnesses. Van Bolt was not there, however. Davis looked pale, nervous, and miserable. Poor fellow, evidently this sort of thing did not agree with him. Benton was also nervous and excited, I could see. Lytell looked somewhat bored and tired, but gave me a nod and came over to me, making his way into the forbidden precinct without interruption, as can only be done by men such as he, who by quick and mendacious assumption are in the habit of getting what is not by right theirs. As he leaned over my chair, he whispered, This is a miserable affair, Dick. I was not inclined for conversation, however as I wished to give my entire attention to the proceedings, so I only motioned him to a chair nearby. Without unnecessary delay, the coroner briefly stated the occasion of the hearing, and then gave the results of his observation and post-mortem. He did it with no more verbosity and display of unintelligible technical terminology than the ordinary medical expert indulges himself in on such occasions. The jury and audience were able to glean from his testimony with reasonable certainty, nevertheless, that White had died from a stab, I believe he said an incised wound, made by a dagger or dirk or some similar slim, sharp instrument, driven with great force into the back just beneath the left shoulder blade, slightly downward in direction and penetrating the heart. Such a blow as might have been given by a man standing over him while he lay on his right side. There was no other cause of death, for White was organically as sound as the average man. In reply to a few suggestions, rather than questions, from the inspector, he added that when he had first seen White about eight o'clock the preceding morning, he had probably been dead some hours, he could not say definitely, that he died suddenly, probably without much outcry or struggle, that he had not killed himself, because the wounds could not have been self-inflicted. This much was reasonably clear from his testimony, and as he was not afforded by cross-examination an opportunity to explain or contradict himself, 
the jury was left with some information on the subject. Dr. Lincoln, who succeeded him, told of his early call about seven o'clock by Benton, of his finding White dead, as described, on the divan, and his subsequent assistance at the post-mortem. In a very few words he corroborated the coroner's testimony in all important particulars, and left no doubt in anyone's mind that White had been murdered some time early in the night, and with the stiletto, which was produced and identified by both him and the coroner, as the weapon they found in the wound. The sheath was also produced, and fitted to the weapon and its location over the divan described. Benton was the next witness. He was laboring under considerable excitement, but gave his evidence clearly. He testified to leaving White the night of his death about quarter to one o'clock, that White had been drinking, and was in an ill humor, but not drunk that he had thrown himself upon the divan almost immediately after we had left, and at the same time had ordered the witness to go home, which order he had obeyed without delaying to arrange anything. In the morning he had returned at his customary hour, a little before seven o'clock, and had entered the room, the door of which, contrary to custom, he had found unlocked, that the room appeared just as he had left it, and to his surprise he had seen White still upon the divan, apparently asleep, that he went over to arouse him and discovered he was dead and saw the dagger hilt protruding from his back, that he had rushed out into the hall and called for help, then into the street, leaving the door open behind him to find a policeman, that he succeeded in doing so within the block and returned with him to the house. When they got there, they found the landlady and the housemaid standing in the hall looking into the room, but they had not apparently been in that, by direction of the officer, he next went to the police station and reported the case, and then came to me, after which he sent a messenger for Mr. Lettel, and went himself for Mr. Van Bolt, but the latter had left the city by an early train, at least so the servant said, that he had then returned to the house, where a large number of people had gathered. He knew nothing further about the matter." The inspector asked if there had been any money on the card table when he had left that night, to which he answered that there had been some large bills left by one of the gentlemen after the game, but that he did not see them there in the morning. The plaid cap, which had been found back of the divan, was here produced and shown him, and he was asked if he recognized it. He responded promptly that it was a cap which White was in the habit of wearing sometimes on rough nights, and volunteered the statement that both it and a corresponding ulster had been lying on the chair near the window the night of the murder, but the latter was not there in the morning. Benton was succeeded on the stand by Davis. The latter had little to tell, however. He briefly related in a weak voice about our doings there the previous evening, stating that he had left about the same time as Benton, leaving White stretched out on the divan, and had closed the door behind him, that he had gone up to his room and retired. In the morning, about seven o'clock, he was aroused by a commotion and the call of the housemaid, and had dressed and gone down immediately to find White dead on the divan as described, that a police officer was then in the room, and the landlady and housemaid were in the passage, that shortly afterwards others came, myself among the number. 
He also testified that Van Bolt had left four $50 bills on the table that night before, and that they were there when he left, but that he did not see them in the morning. So, also, he said the plaid cap and ulster had been on a chair near the window, but were missing in the morning. He offered no further testimony and was permitted to leave the stand without questions. Lytell was then called and told briefly and clearly what had happened, as I already knew it, on the night of White's death. After reciting the events of the evening, he stated that he had walked to Madison Square with me and then continued uptown to his hotel, that on the following morning while dressing, he thought about eight o'clock, he received a note from Benton, which he produced, telling him of the murder, and that he had then gone at once to White's house and found things as they had been described. He corroborated Benton and Davis about the missing money and the cap and ulster. He also was not cross-examined. Van Bolt was then called, but did not answer, and the sheriff's deputy explained he was non-est. This, coupled with the statement of Benton that he had left the city early on the morning of the murder, created some stir among the audience, their first active demonstration of interest that I had observed, though they had given close attention to all the proceedings. Next, the day officer on White's beat took the stand and told of his call by Benton, the visit to White's rooms, and his guard over them until others arrived on the scene and took charge. He confirmed the statements of the previous witnesses as to the conditions of the room and position of the body, but as he had not come on duty until six in the morning, he could give no information on the important matter of what happened earlier. The inspector here leaned over and asked me if I cared to testify, but as I could throw no additional light upon the subject and preferred on account of my official position not to take the stand, I declined. He then suggested that as he had no further important testimony ready to offer, the hearing be adjourned to the second succeeding day. I guessed that his purpose in omitting the testimony of the night officer was to collect evidence against Winters before disclosing his case, but I felt it was only right he should do so, and as I was anxious that more should be learned, if possible, of the whereabouts of the Ulster, I agreed to the suggestion, and the hearing was accordingly adjourned. After requesting him to send Detective Miles to me the following morning to report, I gathered up the notes of the evidence which I had taken for later use, and in company with Littell and Davis, took my way to the Crescent Club. As we walked uptown, Davis seemed too depressed for conversation, while Littell, with his usual serenity, contented himself with the remark that it was an unpleasant affair, and he hoped it would soon be over. I was not satisfied, however, to let the subject pass in so indifferent a way, for I wanted some expression from him on certain points in the case. I therefore asked him what he made of the disappearance of the Ulster. He answered, rather impatiently, I thought, that he made nothing of it, that he did not see how he could be expected to under the circumstances, as no one had furnished him any information on the subject. At this, Davis, who always had an ear for the ridiculous, laughed in a half-hearted way. I felt a little annoyed, however, at his indifference, more especially as I was confident that his astute mind had not overlooked the incident or its importance, and I asked him rather sharply not to trifle with a serious subject, but to give me his real opinion, for I wanted it. 
"'Well, Davis,' said he, "'if you must have it at this very undeveloped stage of evidence, "'I think that when you find the Ulster you will be on the track of the murderer.' "'And after a moment's pause he continued, "'The Ulster was in the room when we left it, "'and it was not there the following morning. "'Someone, therefore, was in the room in the meantime and removed it. "'Now it is very unlikely that more than one man was there, "'and that man must have been the murderer as well as the thief.' "'He reflected a moment and then went on. "'The Ulster, nevertheless, was not taken for its value.' for to have realized on it the thief must have contemplated selling it and no man in his right senses who had been guilty of murder would have jeopardized his neck by selling any article taken from the scene of the crime so conspicuous as the ulster no he resumed after a moment's thought it was taken with some deeper design and is now either destroyed or safely hidden or more likely still disposed of in some ingenious way that will only further baffle the authorities when found. Thus far Littell's reasoning had been similar to my own, only, as I had to confess, clearer and more direct. I wished now to lead him a step further and confront him with the dilemma that had met me when I learned that White himself had worn the coat out that night after we left him. So I told him that within less than half an hour after we parted with him, White had left the house wearing the ulster. How do you know that? he asked. Because, I answered, the night officer saw him. Ah, Littell said. That is a curious coincidence, I admit. But it did not interfere at all with our theory. If he did leave the house, he continued, reasoning apparently as much to himself as to me, he certainly returned because he was murdered there, and upon returning he removed the ulster and lay down again and the original conditions were restored. I do not see that it alters the situation, except that it drops the curtain a little later. Then, I said, you adhere to the theory that the murderer took the ulster. "'Yes, I see no other solution,' he replied. "'I reflected that if Latell's reasoning were correct, "'then Winters, or whomever the man may have been "'the night officer had seen coming out of the vestibule of White's house, "'had not been the murderer, "'and I determined to see what view Latell would take of it. "'I therefore related this incident to him and continued, "'This man, it is thought by the police, was concerned in the murder,' but he did not have the ulster with him when he left the house. Lytell looked puzzled for a minute and then answered, I adhere to my opinion just the same. If that man did not have the ulster, he is not the murderer. His presence on the scene that night very likely had no connection with the crime. But, I insisted, your reasoning is all premised upon the assumption that White must have worn the ulster when he returned, for otherwise there would be no necessity for accounting for its disappearance. Is it not possible, on the contrary, that he left it somewhere and returned without it? No, said he, not on such a wet night and in evening dress. I admit its improbability, I acknowledged. But is it not possible, nevertheless? Not sufficiently to be taken into account, he replied. Most things are possible. 
but if we stop to consider all the possibilities in a case, we will have no time for the real facts and will arrive nowhere and accomplish nothing. Take my word for it, Dick. The man who committed the murder took the ulster. This was my opinion, too, and as we had reached the club, no more was said. On entering, a servant told me that Mr. Van Bolt was waiting for me in the library. So we went there and found Van Bolt seated in front of the fire with an unopened paper in his hands, gazing abstractedly before him. We greeted him, and then for some moments were silent. There was so much to say, and so little that seemed adequate. We four, of all others, were most allied by friendship and intimacy with poor White, and by the incidents of that night with the tragedy of his death. All seemed too oppressed with the memories of our last gathering to break the silence, and we stood waiting on one another for the first word. Several members of the club in the meantime came to the door and looked in, but seeing us four together turned back. At last Van Bolt said, I suppose the papers have told me all you men know. I learned of it first in Buffalo and returned as soon as I could. I am sorry I went away at all, but it was a matter of importance, and I suppose I could have been of no use here. He paused a moment, but none of us said anything, and he went on. Uh, so far as I can learn, there is absolutely no clue to the mystery. I did not know that poor Arthur had an enemy in the world. Is there any evidence of a motive? he concluded. None, Davis replied, except that the money you left on the table was gone. Well, that was a small sum to murder a man for, he replied. And no one knew of its being there either, but uh, he hesitated and then broke off. Does suspicion attach to no one? I refrained from answering, but Littell said no. Noticing my silence, however, Van Bolt turned to me and asked if the police knew more than the public. Yes, I told him, they do. They think perhaps they have the right man. It is clever work if they have really found him so soon, he answered, for it must have been a blind trail to pick up. Too clever by much, said Littell. I don't believe it. Nor I, I joined in, but more to myself than the others. Davis ventured no opinion. He only looked from one to another of us as we spoke. I doubt if the subject would have interested him at all, except for our connection with it. After a while, in a pause in our talk, he suggested something to eat and drink and billiards or anything to cheer us up, as he said. I don't think any of us were averse to a digression from the subject which hung over us like a pall, and we took his advice, and to all appearance, at least, the others put the subject away from them for the remainder of the night. It was never out of my thoughts, however. Till the man who killed White was found and brought to justice, I knew I could not rest. And I fancy Lytell and Van Bolt had some idea of what was in my mind, for they looked at me curiously now and then during the evening. And at parting, Lytell said, Cheer up, Dick. The world is full of troubles of other people, and you'll find your own enough to worry over. Van Bolt only told me to go to bed and sleep as he bade me good night and went off with Davis, but I knew he also thought I was dwelling too much on the subject. I have no doubt they were right, but I could not help it, 
and went to my room to pass a sleepless night. End of chapter 5